didn't know I was preaching until about 10 or 11 o'clock Friday night, so say a prayer for me. But I do believe that God has prepared this message. I think he, has, he was with me, and as I'm continuing through Philippians, I, um, I, I believe that he has a word for us. So if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we will we'll pick up where we left off last month. Let me pray before we get started. Father, I thank you, God, for this word. I thank you for these people, for these souls who are gathered here. God, I pray that you would speak to each one. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide this message, that you would help me to remain out of the way and just be a mouthpiece. Um, take these lips of clay and use them for your glory for your will, that um, that your message would go forth and that you would be glorified and that you would be honored, Lord, and that you would keep me humble. God, I pray, Lord, as we look at this particular topic, as we look at our culture today, that you would help us to learn to live in a changing culture, that you would help us to learn to live in a perverse culture in a way that we would still honor and glorify you and that we would have a desire to seek the lost. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a quick review, <clears throat> um, the book of Philippians. In the first part, I'll just back up to the first part of chapter 2. The first part of this chapter, we've seen a call for Christian unity. But it is not a unity forsaking truth. That is, many would suggest that we do that today. Many would suggest that we put aside truth of Scripture in order to be unified as Christians. That's not the unity that we're talking about here. No, this unity is in truth. And that's really the only way you can have true unity as Christians is that it's united in truth, that it's united in the Word of God. A unity of one accord and one mind through the study and understanding of Scripture. That's what we seek as Christians, not unity at the expense of truth, but a unity in truth. Now, does that mean we can't have unity if we don't agree on every single point? No, of course not. But it does mean, have you ever had a conversation with somebody over scriptures, over doctrine, and you may not completely agree, but you do agree in the fact that you're seeking truth through the Scripture, and you both may part ways, and you may not see it exactly the same, but there's a unity there in the Scriptures, and there's a further study that we're going to go study this out, and hey, we need to talk about this again. And there's a unity there in the body of Christ that the Scriptures are the truth. Um, that's what we're seeking after. That's what we should desire and then we saw an amazing explanation of who Christ is. And if you missed Equipping Hour this morning, you got an expansion of that um, in the three offices of Christ. But right here in chapter 2, we see the explanation that Christ is deity, he is God, and at the same time, he is man. And it's brief there in chapter 2. Um, and then we saw that the end result of mankind, what, what the end result of mankind will be concerning Jesus. 
And that that is that at his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And then I went through verse 12 and 13 rather quickly. So I want to revisit verses 12 and 13. So we'll start there. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So I wanted to re- just kind of go back to that working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because there's a, there's a sense in which we are saved from guilt and the wrath of God directly when we come to the cross. When you give your life to Christ, when you repent and bow your knee to Christ, you are saved from guilt and wrath of God. But there's also a sense in that as, as Our salvation from the power of sin will not be complete until we stand before God in perfect beauty. And in that sense, we have to work it out. So maybe you've heard that said like this. We are saved, and we are being saved, and we will be saved. In God's economy, once he saves a sinner, it is finished. You're saved. But yet... There's times when you may not feel saved, right? There's times when we struggle with sin, and that's what this is talking about. And so we must work out our salvation. Now, it's not a, and I talked about this last time, it's not a matter of we're going to work to earn our salvation. I'll get more to that. But we are working it out. We're, we're moving through this life working Towards our salvation, towards the ultimate salvation when it is all complete. And it says with fear and trembling. So I'm hoping to bring all this together in just a second. But he says with fear and trembling. And I thought, why are we to work this out with fear and trembling? If you want to know why we should be working out through our lives with fear and trembling, look to the gospel. Look to what the Father did to God the Son. He did not spare Him. He did not hold back one drop of His mighty wrath on Christ when He went to the cross. Isaiah says it pleased the Father to crush Him. He poured His wrath out on God the Son. When you realize that, there should be a fear and there should be a trembling when we fail to show sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart. It means to be pulled apart from this world. And we all fail in sanctification day to day, week to week, month to month. But we should be growing in sanctification from the moment you're saved until God calls us home. We are growing in sanctification. But when we fail and we fall into sin... There should be a fear. There should be a trembling. Why? Because God didn't spare His own Son. He's a wrathful God, but He's also a loving God. And getting this balance is what we are working towards. This is what we're working to understand in this life. A balance of understanding our position with God. So yeah, there is. And and that is our work That's what we are to do. It is a constant work from the time we're saved until we're complete. It's a work towards sanctification. It's a work towards glorifying God. 
I don't, I don't think, if I asked to raise your hands, anybody in here would say, yeah, I glorify God with my life completely. No. We all know that we fall short in that. And so we have a fear and a trembling, but we're working towards glorifying God better in our lives every day. And then he says in the next verse, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And that's the key to verse 12. You've got to have verse 13. You cannot have verse 12 without verse 13. You cannot work out your salvation. You can't do it apart from God working in you. You are not going to earn your salvation. And there is a lot of teachings out there, a lot of different denominations, different sects of Christianity that are going to claim that you can earn your salvation. You can't. And there's lots of reasons I could go into that about why. One is, no matter how much good you do, you can't undo the bad that you've already done. And that there are people sitting here that maybe have never considered this. You've already broken the law. You've already fallen short. You've already sinned. You've already sinned against a holy God, the one that gave you life. And you consider your sin. You've told lies. You've stolen things. You've blasphemed the name of God. You've dishonored your mother and father. You go through the law, and that's what it's for. It's to put a reflection in front of you that says, I've already fallen short of this glory of God, and there's no amount of good that you can do to make up for the bad. So it's actually absurd to think that you can earn your salvation. You can't. You cannot undo the wrong you have done by doing good. At the best, you could start right now and sin no more, which we all realize is also impossible in this depraved state, right, in this depraved body. So at the best, you could even, but even then, even if you went the rest of your life without committing another sin, what's going to atone for the rest of those sins? There has to be a punishment paid. God is just. So the only one that can do that, the only one that can atone for past sins would have to be sinless. Right? He would have to be perfect. Of course, that's Christ. That's the point of this passage. It is to show us that we are to work, but we are to work into the glory of God, but He is actually the one who's doing the work. It, it's, a, it, it's confusing. It's difficult. Yes, you're doing the work, but it's God who's working in you. He works so in a way that it's unobtrusive. Does that make sense? He, 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 we do not always realize when he's moving, when he's working within us. It's his sovereignty. He is absolutely in control of the universe. He is the potter and we are the clay. And this means that he can work in us through natural means. So in other words, he can conform our desires. If you're born again, you know this has happened. You've seen this happen. There's sins that disappear. There's desires that change. Is there not? Have your desires not changed since you've been born again? Did you do that? Did you muster up this? Nope, I'm just going to change my mind. 
You can't force that. But the Holy Spirit does it. He comes in. He teaches us. He conforms us as we grow in sanctification, working through this life, all the way through it to our ultimate sanctification, to our ultimate salvation. That's how he works. So he's doing it in a way that sometimes we don't even know. He's teaching us from within in ways that we don't know it at the time. And then you look back on you and go, wow, when did that, when did that change? When did my foul mouth change? I don't remember working at that. It just kind of happened. That's how God works in us. And then there's other times, there's other sins that he has, he sends other people and you have to train yourself and you have to really work at it. And it's different, but it's all of God working through us for our sanctification and ultimately our salvation. That's God working in us. That's what it means to live and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is doing it before a holy God. It is learning to glorify God. And it is all by the power of God working through us. And that brings us to verse 14. So look at Philippians 2.14. It says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. So in the light of all of that, all of that what I just said, consider this verse with doing all things without complaining or disputing. When you have a task to do, no matter what it is, do not grumble and whine about it. Man, this is one of those, this is one of those verses. You know, I, I've talked not too long ago about one, pretty much one verse would solve a lot of our country's financial problems. And that was, if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. This is one of those verses that would solve a lot of our country's just problems in general. A lot of young people, especially, I deal with young people on a daily basis, not just my kids. If you don't know, I'm also a school teacher. And so I can see the, the people that practice this verse are such a delight to be around. You know what I'm talking about when somebody says, hey, do you mind doing this? Absolutely. And they just jump up and do it. And you parents understand this greatly because whenever you tell your kids to do something, there's sometimes they do it and they're just grumbling and it, okay, I'm just gonna go. Or it's one of these. You know what I'm talking about. But how much of a joy is it when you say, could you do this? Sure. And they jump up and do it. Hey, parents, there's something I realized. You know where they learned that sigh from? Yeah, I catch myself doing it pretty regular. I catch myself grumbling and complaining about tasks that God has me to do. And you may not see it, but I know it in my heart. This is not just an outward thing, but it would definitely help just to work on the outward. But it's also within do it without complaining, without whining. Do it to the glory of God because it is part of God working in you to work out your salvation. The tasks that he has for us to do, no matter what they are. And by the way, when we're talking about serving others, when we're talking about serving the body of Christ, serving the kingdom of God, the task doesn't really have like, there's not like these great ones like, oh, 
I've achieved and I'm doing this great thing and this lowly thing over here. No, let me tell you something. Picking up trash outside the church is just as important. Cleaning the bathrooms is just as important as other tasks. Caring for children. Preaching the word. It's all important when it comes to serving the body of Christ. It takes it all. It can't happen without, one can't happen without the other. But it doesn't matter. I mean, we know that there's an order of things. We, we, we deal with an order of things. But here's what he's saying. Do it all without grumbling and complaining. Do it all without whining. Do it all without, uh, just without complaint. Do it with joy. Romans says that, All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The good that is coming from all of those things, this is what we tend to forget. The good that is coming from all of those things is our salvation and our sanctification. It's for our good. And a lot of times it's hard things. A lot of times it may be difficult to swallow. It may be other people... Making things difficult on us. It may be persecution. It may be disobedient children. It may be a difficult boss. All of those things are there. But what God says is it's all working towards your, it's for your good. Sometimes that's difficult to understand. But look at verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So that's, there's a lot in there. But at first, we see the purpose. Do all things without complaining and disputing, so that you may become blameless and armless. Part of you becoming sanctified, part of you becoming blameless, part of you becoming more complete in Christ, is learning how to do things without grumbling And complaining. See verse 15 ties back to verse 12. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out your sanctification. To learn to be in Christ. Is to learn to do things without complaining. Taking That is taking steps towards righteousness. And it will allow you to make a bigger impact on the world. It will allow you to make a bigger impact on the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of God. It will allow you to be seen by sinners as somebody that they may want to listen to. Right? It is a strange culture we're living in right now. I went to, I don't even remember where I was. It was like a McDonald's or something. And I was greeted in an extremely friendly way by the person behind the counter. And I did not realize how strange that was these days. It is a strange... We have, we have went in the last two or three years in a, in a cultural way to where it is a strange thing to have people treat you politely. Unless you're at Chick-fil-A. They got it figured out. They have good training. But... Th- Honest truth, that is why Chick-fil-A is still thriving so much. 
No offense to my Chick-fil-A workers here, but it's not necessarily the food. It's the service. The service is what's so good there. It's the service is what is set apart there. And that, it, that goes back to this. It goes back to we're living in a culture where you will stand out if you're just serving others in a way that is polite without grumbling. They will notice you. It will be noticed by sinners and Christians alike when you do this. When you follow this verse, these verses right here, it's true. So we see the purpose. If you will learn to serve others without grumbling and complaining, you're taking steps towards righteousness. You're taking steps towards righteousness. And you will be noticed even in this perverse generation. We are called to be lights in a darkened world. And indeed it is darkened. It says crooked and perverse generations. These terms are as accurate as ever to, to, to describe our culture, to describe our world, to describe our generation. The word crooked means warped. The word perverse means to turn away from the right path. It's the opposite of what is good. The Bible says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And we're living in a time when we are seeing that more than I don't know ever. Definitely in the last 40 years. I've been here for 40. And the opposite, what is good is being called evil. And what is evil is being called good more than any time I've ever seen. More than any time in this country. And maybe in the, in the history of the world. I don't know. But both those words basically mean to be opposite of that which is holy and good and godly. And that's the generation that Paul was talking about. That's the generation we're living in now. And if you can't see this now, you're not paying much attention. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 real quick. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the, in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. We are, living, we are living in a time that this is happening so obvious before our eyes, it's almost unbelievable. Perversion is not even a strong enough word to describe what we are seeing. I used to call it confusion, but I don't think the term, I don't think that's what's going on. I, I was wrong or, or it's gotten worse. Um, I, don't, I don't believe confusion is the right term. Maybe in individuals there's some confusion for sure. But as a movement, as a people, as a culture, this is not confusion. This is a willful rebellion against a holy God. That's what we're seeing. And they know it. The terms are changing. 
I, I, I thought about just how perverse is our culture? How perverse is the world? And it's not just the United States. This is a worldwide phenomenon that's going on. If you guys know Ryan Powell, he's preached here, it's been a while, but he's one of our missionaries that we support. He spent years in, in um, France. And he said, whatever we're seeing here is about 20 years behind what happened in France. So the homosexual revolution that we saw happen here happened about 20 years earlier in France. What we're seeing now with transgenderism has already went on there. And if it's happening in France, it's happening across Europe. So it's not just, it's, it's the Western world that we're seeing this in, not just the United States. But, I mean, you think about what is going on. Men are becoming women. Women, women are becoming men. Twenty years ago, that was happening on a very rare occasion. Today, that's happening on a much more likely occasion. It's happening much more rapidly. But it's not just about homosexuality. That is the end result of of the sin that has been going on within our culture for much longer and within the church or at least within professing believers. Did you know that 70, according to Pew Research, 70% of couples live together before they are married? So 70% of the couples that are married right now or that are together right now live together before they were married. There are a lot of people right here in Ada that have no idea the Bible calls that sin. 95%, according to Pew Research, 95% of Americans had premarital sex. 95%. The sin is rampant. Did you know this, uh, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, what's it been, maybe a month? Now, when that, when that happened, I think... On social media, it revealed a lot of things. It revealed a lot of people's hearts. And I, I was shocked at one thing I saw in particular. It was a girl I went to high school with. She was a couple years younger than me. But she made the argument that it does not even matter if that's a baby or not. See, we used to, we used to think that the argument was if we can just convince them that this is a baby in the womb, maybe they won't want to kill it. No. There are many pro-abortionists now that know exactly what they're doing. And I'm not talking about just the abortion, quote-unquote, doctors. They, they have always known. But I'm talking about the people that are supporting this, just normal people, everyday people that we know, that just live and work among us. They know that that is not a clump of cells. They know that's a baby, and their argument is that they should not be forced their bodies to sustain that life. If that is not wicked and perverse, a mother with a baby in her womb knows what it is, and just because she doesn't want it, I'm going to kill it. We've used that language to maybe to try to make that clear. They know that, many of them. And that's the argument that we're going to start seeing more and more. They know that they can't continue the lies of it's just a fetus, it's just a clump of cells. 
They're just going to start saying, you know what? We know what it is, and we want to kill it anyway. That is a perverse generation. Words have been stripped of their meaning in order to manipulate truth. You can't have a logical conversation with many of these people because words don't have meanings anymore. I was reading a, a review on the, there's a movie came out, documentary called What is a Woman? Some of you have probably seen it. I have not. But I was reading a review on it because it caught my attention um, that it was basically just right-wing bigotry. That was the thing. So I was curious on what this review was. And in the, in the review, the, this is a direct quote. The guy that wrote the review said, There is no contradiction between saying that men cannot get pregnant and men can get pregnant. I mean, how do you, I don't even know what to say on that. That is a direct contradictory statement. How do we, how do we argue with this? You can't logically argue with this. It cannot be done. You can't do it. You cannot have a logical conversation with somebody that says that. And this was, this was put, I mean, they typed this out and had time to pre, you know, it wasn't like a typo. This is indeed a perverse generation, a perverse society. But we are called to be light in this dark, perverse world. How are we going to do this? How are we going, how are we called to be a light? By working for God without grumbling or complaining. We're called to work out our salvation. But how is this done? It's by working for our Lord Jesus while He works in us. What does this look like? We serve Christ. We serve one another. We go forth and we preach the gospel and we make disciples. And we stand for truth. The logical conversations are not going anywhere. And I suspect that's probably going to be a a shortcoming of Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? He's trying to address this in a logical way. Logic is not going to work. What is going to work is the power of the Word of God and the power of the Gospel. That is it. That is it, period. And this is going to include persecution. The question is not whether or not a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man. And if this is what we should allow. And do we love those people? And is homosexuality okay? And should you be fornicating before you get married? And should you live with your partner before you get married? And all of those things. Could I? Does it increase my chance of my marriage lasting longer or does it not? And we can look at all those statistics. And the bottom line is... What does the Word of God say? I remember years ago, it was during the homosexual marriage thing, whenever that was becoming legal, and we were meeting over in in Ronnie's house, and there was a neighbor of his that had come over, and she asked him. I I was just kind of eavesdropping. I was just listening. She said, what do you think about gay marriage? And his answer was so spot on. He said, 
It doesn't matter what I think about gay marriage. The question is, what does God say about gay marriage? The question is, what does God say about transgenderism and fornication and theft and stealing and not working to earn a living and all of those things that are sin? It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what the gay community thinks or the left-wing people think. What matters is, what does God think? And if we will stick to that, we have hope. And it may come, not it may, it will come with persecution. Skip down, go back to Philippians. And skip down and look at verse 17. He says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and will and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, remember, Paul's in prison. He is he is bound in Rome. He can't leave the house and he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. But he said, I may be poured out as a drink offering. And then later on. He is. Later on, he, he, of course, is a martyr. But it, what, it didn't happen at this time. But he said, if I'm poured out as a drink offering, in other words, if I give my life here, I'm going to rejoice in that. And yet we grumble and complain when somebody mistreats us or somebody uses us or whatever it is. And he, here he, or somebody yells at us, uses all caps on Facebook, and we feel real bad. And Paul's saying, I'm... If, I, if they take my life, then we will rejoice. I will rejoice, and you need to rejoice in that. Why? Because that is the light in the darkness. Throughout history, revivals have occurred on the backs of martyrs. Throughout history, revival, revivals have occurred because of persecution and people with with standing persecution with joy. They would go to the burning stake singing hymns. And that's what he's saying we need to do. Even with persecution. If Paul can rejoice in this, we too can. And the reason is not because Paul was so strong. It was because God was working in him. To will and do for his good pleasure. And the same God who was working in Paul that he could write this amidst persecution with such joy is the same God who's dwelling in each one of us who are born again. And he will give us that power. And look at verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Holding Fast. And you remember in Ephesians in chapter 6 where Paul goes through the armor, the spiritual armor of the Christian. And he's comparing that to the, the armor of a Roman soldier. Hold fast. The Romans would lock their shields together. They had great big shields and they would lock them together and form a line. And did you know the Romans were the ones that invented cleats? They invented spikes on the bottoms of their shoes so that when they would get in these battles and they would have their shields locked together, they could hold their ground and then they could push forward to take new ground. Here's a really, really simple key to battle. 
You can't take ground when you're losing ground. He says, hold fast. Don't give up ground. How do we hold fast? What's it say? Holding fast the word of life. Hold fast to the word of God. This is where the, lo- the logical arguments will fall short. I can tell you, I, I heard a stat the other day. I thought it was great. And it is interesting because the word of God does benefit us as well. There, there's a, I can't remember the exact percentage, but you are much more likely, if you don't live with your spouse before you're married, that marriage is much more likely to last. Now, I can give you that logical argument, but a sinner is going to go, I don't believe that. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to. So what do we do? That's not the power. The logical arguments, the statistics, all of those things are not the power. The power of the Word of God is the only thing that can bring the light in this darkness. And now is not the time to be soft on sin. Now is not the time to, to coddle this perverse generation. It's not the, it, we, we cannot compromise this truth of Scripture in the name of love. Now is not the time, never is the time. This perverse generation does not need coddling, they need truth. Does that mean we don't love them? Of course not. We're called to love this perverse generation. We're called to love the people that are committing these things. But how do we do that? They're in a sinful, rebellious state to their creator, and Jesus is the cure. So how do we help them? How do we love them? There's only one way, and that's to give them Jesus. That's to preach to them the cross. That's to show them that they are in a dire need for a Savior because they are in sin up to their eyeballs. That's the only way we can help them. You can't help them by saying, oh, yeah, I understand. It was really hard. And, you, you, you know, the, there's reasons you are whatever it is. No. The best thing we can do for people is to tell them that they're sinning before a holy God. And if they don't repent, his wrath will come. He didn't withhold his wrath from his son. What makes us, any of us, think he will withhold it from somebody just because they're confused? Or somebody because they're in rebellion? Or somebody because they, ha- they think they have some sort of twisted love for another? No, he's not going to withhold that wrath. The only cure is Jesus. And make no mistake, no matter how heinous the sin, no no matter how perverted you think someone is, or how heinous you think your sins are in the past, or that you're in right now, Jesus' sacrifice, His blood, His work, is sufficient. It can cure all. But He's the only one. There is no hope in any other way. There is no hope in some sort of mystical love for other people. There is no hope in some sort of way that you're going to make a deal or or any other gods or any other system. No, there is one hope and that's in Christ.
And the only way that we can proclaim that is to go about his business and his work in a joyful way without grumbling and complaining. Let's pray. Father, I I pray, Lord, that I would heed this message. And I, God, I ask that you would forgive me of all the times I've fallen short. All the times I've grumbled and complained about the work that you would have for me. All the time, all the times when I felt prideful and superior. God, I just pray that you would help me to realize how how deep the sin was that you pulled me out of and how I just would have a desire to share that with others. God, I pray that you would help each one of us, us as a body here, as a local body of believers, that we would be a light in this community. We'd be a light in this Ada community and surrounding that people would see us as different because we go about your business without grumbling and complaining, but yet we always have a joy to serve you and to serve others. God, let us be that in our jobs, in our homes, our families, on the Internet, in any place that we have interaction with others. Let us be that light that we could have an opportunity to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And it's in His name I pray. Amen.